podcast one production. Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years, reporting on all the Aussie stars, from Hoags to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. Eric Banner has not really had a traditional Hollywood career. He started out as a comedian and managed to make it as a big star in America without ever relocating there. I caught up with Eric in his hotel in LA the day after he wrapped filming for the Netflix series Dirty John. We chatted about the difference between meeting an Aussie fan and a fan from anywhere else in the world and also his interest in playing big characters like Chopper Reed, The Hulk, Hector in Troy and Avner Kaufman in Munich. Here's Eric. Okay, Eric, I am so excited to have you for Aussies in Hollywood. It's unusual that you would actually be in LA, right? I mean, you don't live here. So um, it's, it's only taken of... us three months to try and schedule this. <laughs> exactly. Picked a day that I knew couldn't be, couldn't be uh, blown up. So here we are. And last night you finally wrapped filming Dirty John, the yeah. limited series, which will be in Australia in February, I believe. You know more than me. Okay, good. On I can Netflix. Tell Mum. All right. There you go. <laughs> it's nice that you got to. I mean, you know, people talk about actors who went to Hollywood. But you never literally went to Hollywood that much. <laughs> I never to had work. to go to Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of yeah, yeah, exactly. So you do enjoy filming in LA? I do. Yeah, I do like being here. Um, probably because I don't, I don't get to spend much time here. And when I do, it's usually junkets. So it's usually always quick ins and outs on the way to New York or something. Um, so it was actually really nice to just be here for an extended extended period of time for a change yeah and catch up with friends and be able to skip a winter and it was nice it was really nice I got the feeling from you know looking at your credits and stuff that you you you're not one of those actors that just goes back to back forever you kind of do like maybe one a year in general is that right and has that always been the way you worked you can call me lazy it's all right (laughs) (laughs) no I love that I think it's probably a family thing right uh, honestly, it's just, I, I think it's more just how my brain works or it's me just working out what my pace is. I think early on I figured out that that was my kind of my rhythm, you know, and everyone's different. And I've only, I've only ever worked back to back once and it was a very unique experience and it's not something I'd try and replicate. Um, so I just decided years ago that, that was not something I wanted to do and I really enjoy the prep time, I enjoy the downtime. Um, could I work more? Yes, but I don't. I also don't feel like I really miss out on anything as a result. I think it's kind of arrogant to think, oh, there's all these amazing things that you're missing out on by saying, no, I just don't think there's that much good material out there really to, to be able to say comfortably that there's all this great work that you're not doing as a result. There's just not that much great work out there. So... Yeah, it's just a rhythm that sort of that sort of works for me. I didn't want to burn out. I didn't want to like come into this business and like ten years later, like what happened to Eric, you know? So I sort of found my rhythm early on, and I just sort of stuck with it. Right. So let's go back to the beginning. You're a Melbourne boy, born and raised. Um, you had a gift for kind of comedy right back to your school days. Did you know that was a gift? I knew it was a, I knew it was a currency, 
Um, it didn't seem unusual to me, but it was I always got a kick out of seeing people's reactions to an impression or, or and it was early on it was family and then it became, you know, friends at school and stuff. Um, but it wasn't like a like a skill that you sort of honed or that you sort of worked on. It was just something that sort of came, you know, like I just really liked observing people and it's like a it, it's like it's something that I can't filter. Like I notice what people do, I notice how they speak. It's just how my brain works. So um, I guess I guess acting is just an extension of that. But I didn't, I wasn't able to really identify that until much much later on. You know. Right. So what was your exposure to TV and film when you were young? I had a really good relationship with television because you know, growing up in the seventies, there was a lot of really bawdy interesting Australian television like The Box, Number 96, you know, Matlock Police, Division 4, yes, I am that old. I remember all those shows. Oh, so, so do I, Eric, don't worry. <laughs> so it was kind of nice as much as there, there was American product around, there was also, you know, if you were a kid of the 70s, you were growing up also with Australian product, which was which was pretty good, you know. Um, and I would spend a lot of time at my grandparents' house and my uncle's house and they would let me stay up late and my uncle was a bit naughty and he'd always sneak me into movies that I shouldn't be seeing and blah, blah, blah. So I had a relationship with the entertainment business from a young age, but it was a healthy one, you know. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and it was something that I sort of, it was sort of, I grew up associating it with family, like, you know, watching stuff with your grandparents or watching stuff with your uncle or auntie or watching stuff with mum and dad. Like it was a very, it wasn't... You know, we didn't have TVs in bedrooms. and that. It was something you did together. It was something you experienced together. So um, I always really enjoyed it. And film too? Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. Loved going to the movies, you know. And, I, and we, mum and dad owned a milk bar at the time that, you know, VHS and and beta cams were, were, were a thing and there was a video rental store next to next to our place. And I remember, I remember seeing that growth of, of you know, the video entertainment industry and then people having to make the decision between whether you were a VHS person or a beta person and the the the, the video library being split in two and then one day one took over. Remember? And <laughs> yeah. it was like suddenly it was all VHS, you know. Yeah. You had to pick a side, you know. Is <laughs> there any room for one winner? Um, but, yeah, I used to love going to the video store and finding documentaries and movies and it was thrilling, you know, go home and whack the tape in and get some mates around and watch a movie. When you were watching TV and movies back then, was there there wasn't ever a point where you thought that's a job and I want that? It wasn't so much about that. It was more a case of that looks fun to do, you know. So I wasn't really identifying a sort of a career thing. It was it was just like an instinctual thing that I felt like I could do it or that it would be a fun thing to do um, and that I, yeah, so it was, I don't know how to explain it but... It just sort of made sense to me, you know, and there was no kind of like burning, raging career drive underneath that. It was just the oh, this this is really interesting, and I think I can relate to those people. That looks fun, you know. I heard that the Mel Gibson movie Mad Max was one of the big uh, triggers to in terms of making you think, oh my god, I want to do this. Is that true? Yeah, that's it? true. Yeah, Mad Max one is still my favorite movie of all time, and and. Um, that character and the uniqueness of that story and just its relationship to the landscape and mythology. And I mean, it just spoke to me on so many 
different levels and it was so unique and so out there. To see that as a young person um, was just, I mean, it was just like a drug, you know. Did you ever get to meet Mel and tell him that yeah, inspired you? Yeah, I met him once, yeah, yeah. And um, it was really it was really cool to, to get to meet him. Um, but, yeah, and he was a pioneer, you know. He was doing stuff, you know, way back when no one else was and he, you know, built that little bridge and made people realise that it was that it was possible yeah so so you had that reaction and then when you left school you ended up in comedy in stand-up and doing skits and everything more than like going to audition for NIDA or anything like that what was behind that decision so I never really saw NIDA or those places as as an option for me um I never even saw I never really took tertiary education very seriously at all so I probably had a bit of a chip on my shoulder and probably thought, well, that world doesn't, that's not for me. I wouldn't be welcome there. Um, I'd probably get kicked out after a week. I'd probably, I wouldn't be allowed in there. Like, I don't know. I just built up a, a narrative in my head that that world wasn't for me. And so I was very lucky that my pathway was as stupid and crazy as it was because otherwise wouldn't wouldn't end up here. So... The first thing was was being intrigued by stand-up and being talked into by a co-worker to trying stand-up when I was like, you're mad, like that's for people like Eddie Murphy. and You, know, <laughs> um, you were working and, as a bartender at yeah, a pub then, right? Yeah, I was working in uh, North Melbourne at a pub called The Castle Hotel and having a great time with a great bunch of people and, you know, making people laugh. We, we, we had a really funny crew and everyone would make each other laugh. And one of my mates said to me, um, you should try stand-up. And I immediately said, well, that's a stupid idea. And then he took me to some stand-up comedy venues and I got to see stand-up for the first time up close and realised that some people were good and some people were just not very good. And they were all getting paid. <laughs> and I was making about 50 bucks a night picking up glasses and I thought, you know what, I'm going to give this a go. So that's kind of how it started. Do you remember seeing Paul Hogan doing all his, um, that kind of comedy where he yes. would play all yeah, those characters? that's was another that... TV show I should have mentioned for sure. No, yeah, I was Norm thinking Gunston about, you know, and Mel Paul Gibson Hogan. was influential but I would imagine Paul would have been too. Yeah, Paul Hogan, um, Norm Gunson was a huge, Gary MacDonald and Norm Gunson was a huge character for me growing up. Uh, but I'd say the person that had the biggest impact was Barry Humphreys, for sure. He's one of my heroes. Um, and there was something about his work in character that I, I really connected with and and felt an affiliation. Uh, and I don't know how or why, but it was his work in particular that I, w- that I was really intrigued by. Yeah. But, yeah, no, for sure, the Paul Hogan show and... Delvin Delaney and Strop and all that stuff and, and Norm Gunson was just brilliant, just genius. When you were um, doing all that comedy, were you thinking that that was now the career that you imagined that you would always be doing? I, I knew I'd do it. I'd, I gave myself a period of time that if for it to work because there were a lot of comics who I've, I've, I met who I thought the industry didn't suit them and who seemed miserable and 
and a bit sort of torn down by it. And then I met some people who were really positive and were really professional about it. And I just thought, you know what, I'm going to give myself two years, two and a, two, two and a half years. And if it doesn't work, I'm, I'm out of here. I don't want to be a tragic wannabe stand-up comedian. Um, and luckily for me, you know, at the end of the two years, it was it was an easy decision to just keep going. And by then I was working full-time. I'd given up my, uh, my other daytime jobs and was just working, you know, as a touring comic. So it was a bit of a sort of a evolutionary thing. It wasn't like I'm going to be this huge stand-up and this is going to be my career path. And I just always had short-term goals. Short-term goal, achieve that next short-term goal, you know. So they were little, it was all little bridges one after the other. And The Castle was your film debut, right? Yes. So because it was a comedy, was that what sort of helped you kind of bridge that uh, switch in medium as well? Yeah, maybe. I mean, and it's, not, it's not like I was sniffing around for dramas either. So it was a fortuitous uh, sort of coming together of, you know, Working Dog offering me that part and me sort of reading it and thinking it was hilarious and thinking, yeah, I can do this, this would be fun. Um, but, yeah, at that, that stage there was no there was no drama you know around it was I was interested in it but yeah the castle was my first my first opportunity now that was right around the time you won your first award the tv week logie for most popular comedian do you still have that somewhere it's there I still got it yeah very proud of it too yeah absolutely um it was you know just as my tv comedy career was kicking off and and you know we were part of the new cast of Full Frontal and all trying to find our way. So to to get noticed early on was, it was, you know, it was, it was nice. And it definitely helped the show for sure, yeah. Then you had, I think it, there was a few years you did some short films and uh, you did a series, Something in the Air, yeah. All Saints. Were, was that sort of more getting into the life of an actor as opposed to the stand-up comedy career? or Yeah, I decided... You know, by the time I finished doing those six one-hour specials that were called Eric after Full Frontal, I'd sort of like done everything I wanted to do in the sketch comedy space and I could have easily just kept going and going and going but I felt like to grow I needed to do something different and sort of challenge myself. So then I just started putting myself out there for that stuff Um, and I actually did... I actually did something in the air after Chopper because really yeah because uh, I'd left I'd left Channel Seven um, to pursue other things. I then auditioned for Chopper. Then it took forever to make, so I was just out doing you know touring around doing stand up, and then we and, and it took forever to get Chopper made, and then it took quite a while for it to come out. And in that period, I then signed on the ABC to do something in the air, which was a drama series, which I had a great time doing. It was a really great cast, really nice bunch of people at the ABC in Melbourne and we would film out in the country a couple of days a week. Um, and that was my first sort of entree into regular work as an actor, not doing funny shtick, right? So that was where I sort of found that sort of rhythm. But again, that I'd done Chopper but no one had seen it. it hadn't been released yet. Um, and then, uh, fortunately for me, um, after one or one and a half seasons of something in the air, 
the wonderful producers allowed me out of my contract and always been grateful for that because I definitely wouldn't be here today had they have stuck to their guns on my wow. contract for farmer Joe Sabatini. <laughs> and so then we get to, you know, the role that changed everything, um, Chopper. I mean, I heard that they had not been able to find someone and it was actually Chopper Reed himself that suggested to the director, Andrew Dominic, that he look at you. Do, did he tell you that story? Do you know what they saw in you that made him think that you could play this guy? There's a few different versions of this story and I never, I've never really worked out what, which one is the, 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 the truth. There's two versions. There's one that it, it was Chopper's suggestion and then there's another that they said to Chopper, we're thinking about this guy and, and his quote was, I've seen that guy on the TV, I think he's fucking insane enough to be me or some, something like that. So... <laughs> I don't know which version is, is the actual truth, but I do know that, that Mark was happy for me to portray him. That, that I know for a fact. And I also know they'd, they'd been casting for quite a while and, and, you know, having gotten to know Andrew, it's no shock. I can imagine that his search would have been pretty exhaustive um, and he would have been probably exploring every possible option before, you know, committing to that. So, um, yeah. I mean, you must have been excited, but were you also a little terrified about playing a character that was, you know, could have gone terribly wrong mm. and there was nothing in your background that really at that point suggested that you could do that, mm. if you don't mind me saying you know, yeah. that way. But no, that's to, fine. To the outside world, I mean. I don't think you're getting to stand-up comedy if you're worried about what people think. <laughs> Good you point. You know, Um and I, I, I can't explain the reason for it, but I've, I've never really had a huge fear of failure. It doesn't really, it, it doesn't really bother me. So I think that's a really uh, lucky thing to have. It's not something that I kind of fabricated. It was just something I, I always saw failure is just not that big a deal and, it, and it's, you can just recover from things. So I, I, I never put a, a huge amount of weight on those things like you should or like other people would or people would imagine you would. Um, and also I didn't really have huge expectations. It's not like you do a film like Chopper. Like no one knew who Chopper Reed was outside of Melbourne. Like no one in mm. Sydney knew who he was. So it's not like... I had this weight of expectation of, oh, you know, watch out. Because as far as I was concerned, it was going to be seen by a thousand people in Victoria, you know. <laughs> um, so, but at the same time, I was like, well, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It's not, it's, it's not, I'm not going to let that be the, you know, the end of my career. Maybe it could have been, but it's not how I sort of think. Right. You, know? you went into a very big process to prepare. You put on 30 pounds and you spent a lot of, I think you spent a bit of time in prison. But yeah, that was all just part of the part of the preparing. I was lucky, like we had because that film sort of stumbled in its pre-production. Andrew and I had a lot of time to prepare for it. You know, there was a lot, a lot of time. It wasn't like you got the job and you're starting in two months. I mean, that was on it was on the shelf for quite quite a while. So there was more than a lot of, more than enough time to get ready. Yeah. Did you feel like while you were making that film, were you aware um, that it was something that was going to be really special that maybe more than a 1,000 people would see it? No, I always knew it was going to be special. I didn't really care who saw it. I just knew as an actor it was it was a very special opportunity. That, I, I was old enough to know that. 
um, I definitely felt like, wow, this is this is such a great character that you know this is really unique for anyone. You know, a unique opportunity. I wasn't I, I wasn't naive in in that sense, um, but I had I had no expectations beyond that. I, but I just knew that I had to embrace it because it was a really unique opportunity. That was the point of it. Wasn't like right now comes part two of my. <laughs> Career it was none of, none of that. It was just just try and do a good job here. This is a really unique opportunity as as a as a as an actor. Was it the American launch of this movie that brought you to LA for the first time, or how did that section sort of? Start. I'd actually come out earlier than that. Um, I got sort of semi-scouted off the sketch comedy stuff to meet with some people out here. So I'd, I'd been out like a year before and done a bunch of meetings and um, went around and met various casting people. And, um, and at the time I sort of thought like the most logical path was that I, I, I might end up like with an audition for Saturday Night Live or something. That that sort of made sense. And yeah. I remember thinking, wow, what I've heard these rumors that you have to sign on for seven years and that was sort of freaking me out. And but I, I didn't really know what was going to happen. But I came out and sort of had a bit of a bit of a sniff, uh, went and saw a few things, met a few people, went back to Australia, didn't think much of it. Um, and then yeah, it was sometime later, you know, when we went to Telluride and then um, Toronto with uh, with Chopper that you know things started to move. Yeah. So you were it, Telluride was the first film festival, yeah. and then Toronto, yeah. and um, and then pretty much everybody started talking about it and seeing it, and um, I'm assuming then you got a lot more opportunities pretty quickly after that. Yeah, not straight away. So the first step was just um, finding an agent here. So that was the that was the first. The first thing, so that was a, I really took my time with that and sort of met with a lot of people and, yeah, just try to get my head around how things worked here because I hadn't done that thing of, you know, like I wasn't one of those actors that was hanging out in L.A. I, I was fresh off the plane and trying to work it out and didn't know that much about it and uh, found, an, found an agent that I trusted and that I really had a, a good connection with um, and we were together for, for a long time. So that was the, that was the first step was, was uh, signing with William Morrison a guy by the name of John Fogelman who became my agent. I think I met you when you did the junket for Black Hawk Down, which was, what, 2001, I think? Right. So that was your first big, that was the Ridley Scott movie. That was that, my first American film. Yeah. How was that? Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, amazing, massive cast. And when you, you go, just if... Like go through that cast list today, and it is insane. It is. It's like, oh my god, it is the most. Thing. And at the time, you know, not. I mean, besides you and McGregor, uh, you know, Sam Shepard, Tom Sizemore, most of that cast was unknown. Josh Hartnett, yeah. You know, he was. Yeah, Josh. Actually, Pearl Harbor hadn't come out at that stage. He'd yeah. shot it, but it hadn't come out. Um, so there was a lot of actors that people didn't know, including myself. So it was just one big old gang in the Rabat Hilton in Morocco. Um, 
going into the into the ghettos every day and jumping on helicopters and getting your face full of dust and having the time of your life. You know, it was um, it was an amazing experience. So, what was sort of guiding you? What was your basic sort of plan? The only thing I knew was that that I was a character actor and that I was just going to always try and find interesting stuff that was interesting to me and not end up just kind of doing the same thing over and over again. That was the only sort of clear thing that was in that was in my head and I desperately wanted to use whatever currency I I had to try and translate it into that. So I was never really interested in like what's the pathway to being the, you know, the, the biggest star or what's the pathway to getting a franchise or what's the f- pathway to this or that. I was just interested in the roles um, and not being bogged down and being able to move around and do different things, you know. And so I, I was very conscious of that and I was conscious of avoiding comedy early on for sure. Really? Yeah. And then pe- the funny thing is people were so surprised later on when they found out, oh, my God, did you know he used to be a comedian? I mean, that yeah. must be kind of funny to you even now that there are people that, like, yeah. think that that's weird, you know. Yeah. They only know. And now it's the other way. Now it's it's at the point where they're, you know, it's it's been so long and I'm so old now <laughs> that there are there's a whole generation of people that don't know I did comedy back in Australia, you know, which is kind of fun. They um, haven't discovered you on YouTube? Well, some of them have, but there are, there's definitely, there's, there is an age group there mm-hmm. that don't know that, like our age group do, obviously. You know, they, they, it's a completely different relationship, but there is this whole other, other and I've experienced that through my, my kids' friends where, you know, I'll meet them the first few months and they'll just know me as the dramatic actor guy and then suddenly they'll come over and there's like this twinkle in their eye because they've seen something, you know, that they didn't realise before. They're like, we saw some funny stuff of you back in the day. And, um, yeah, so it's interesting. It, after a while, yeah, you get to another cycle where not even people in Australia knew you did funny <laughs> stuff. <laughs> you, were, um, you were quite a mimic. And um, actually when I talked to Connie Britton, because you're doing obviously Dirty John, we're talking about that as well, she said that not only are you good at mimicking but you're amazing at uh, air conditioning, hums, car motors... Is this true? It's not true. I think I did one engine for her one day when she was bored on set just to <laughs> amuse her and she found it highly amusing. It actually wasn't even very good. So, yeah. She thought you were. <laughs> She's trying to stitch me up. Do you find yourself, uh, is that still something you love to do when you're not working, that side of you that likes oh, to? I still, yeah, I still see people in the world in sketches for sure. I mean, you can't, yeah, I mean, you just couldn't do it anymore, right, because what's happening in real life is so beyond a joke that, you know, it's just there's nothing left. I'd hate to be doing sketch comedy these days because there's, like, people doing such a good job of parodying themselves that there's, like, <laughs> nothing left to do anymore, really. But, yeah, my brain still works like that, definitely, yeah. yeah. You did um, The Hulk in 2003 with Ang Lee. Mm. What was that experience like? That was your first big big blockbuster yeah. and it was a character and the expectation and all of that. It made money but it didn't sound like it was something that you had a fantastic experience with. I don't know if... No, and, and I guess, you know, it, it, you sort of knew that going in, you know, the, that the movie was really about this big green CGI character um, but it was definitely a unique experience and to get, get a chance to work with a director like Ang, you know, and do basically, you know, a kind of a... Uh, populist art film which you know people weren't doing 
back then and no one knew what to expect and it was completely different to what they were expecting um, was kind of fun to be part of that process. The actual filmmaking wasn't, you know, it wasn't the greatest experience I've had but that's been well documented. Yeah. Um, yeah, how many was the record number of takes? From oh, I don't know. It's a lot. Right? Just, just, yeah, a, a lot. But, um, you know, every director you work with, every project's completely different and that was just, you know, one of the, one of the ones that wasn't exactly the kind of work you want to be doing every time but, you know, once and once, once up was, uh, was kind of fun. Right. I remember I think it was Hugh that told the story around that time that there was a, you guys were having a drink after you'd both done the Hulk and Wolverine and sort of being like, can, can you believe we're sitting here like playing these iconic, you know, comic book characters? It must be, it must be nice to have people like that that you can share that journey with. Yeah. And, and, I mean, was it kind of nice to sort of have that parallel and see, oh. um, you know... Yeah, no, so, uh, you know, as you know, Hugh's a, a close friend and we're close friends because of our wives who have been friends before we met. Um, and it's been a really wonderful touchstone for me over the years to be able to have a beer and get together and talk about stuff that you can't talk to other people about. It's really handy and it's a great, I think it's a great sounding board for, for each other and it's something that we really haven't taken for granted and really respect and I love watching his journey and... Um, yeah, it's it's really it's really nice. Nice for the kids as well, you know. Like our, our sons have grown up sort of knowing each other, and th- they have that in common as well, and something that they can they can bounce off. And so no, it's it's been really really nice, and you know the four of us have stayed really close, and and that's been cool. Um, you did Troy after that, and I believe Brad Pitt was a fan of yours from Chopper. Was that how that came to be? I know he ended up working with Andrew later as well, so I assume. Yeah. Yeah, he was. But um, so with Troy, yeah, I just met with Wolfgang and um, told him I wanted to play Hector and he said good because everyone wants to play Achilles. Every actor I meet wants to play Achilles. It's nice to meet someone who wants to play Hector. I'm like, I think Hector's amazing. Like, I want to play Hector. Uh, so, yeah, so that was my next thing after, yeah, after the Hulk, yeah, which was, again, unreal. Big ensemble, you know, Massive production, very little in the way of effects or, or um, you know, the sets were massive. All the stunts were incredible. You know, got to be on a horse bareback every day, sword fighting, and um, it was amazing. Wolfgang was, a, you know, just an absolute sweetheart to work for and had a great time on that film. Yeah, it was amazing. That movie also launched Rose Byrne's career, right? Yes. Yeah. Did you did you meet on that set and sort of I guess you have that connection too now looking yeah, at Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I guess well, no, was that her first American film? I don't know. But I think it was a pretty early one. Yeah. Yeah. And no, that's it was really nice to, to to get to meet her. And it was it was it was amazing. And it sort of that was a film that more than anything sort of changed things for me. Um Yeah, I'd say more than more than Chopper and more than the Hulk because it was so big internationally and it's sort of um yeah it just sort of sort of changed things um see movies like chopper and stuff they're great for getting um a certain portion of the audience to see what you're doing and then it's sort of the clock runs out but troy was great because it it had such a big audience and puts you in front of so many more people um that really opened a lot of doors. Yeah. Right. Um, 
you also won an MTV award for best fight with Brad Pitt in that movie. Do you remember that oh. fight? <laughs> I certainly remember the fight. My God, yeah. Spent a long time uh, working on the choreography for that. And I'm pretty sure, uh, I, don't, I know for me, but I'm pretty sure Brad as well, we knew every move from start to finish of the whole entire choreography. Um, spent months and months and months um, training for that and learning it. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And then um, you also ended up, you know, working with that hack director, Steven Spielberg, you know, <laughs> in that incredible movie Munich. Um, how did that all come about? Uh, I got a phone call saying Stephen wants to meet you. We don't know what it's about. He's working on some top secret project, but we've got a couple of moles and we think it might be this or it could be this. And um, and one of the things that was mentioned was this story about the Munich Olympics, which I was aware of, had read a couple of books about. So then when I went and met with Stephen and at the time he was shooting Terminal with Tom Hanks out in the desert and I drove out there, I was luckily here for a weekend on another project or something. Wow. I was passing through LA so I was able to meet him and we just sat down and he said, I'm making this film and I'd really like you to come on this journey with me and blah, blah, blah. And I walked away and I thought, I think he wants me to be in the movie. <laughs> I, think, I think he actually wants me to be in the film. And then my agent called and was like, how'd it go? I said, it was great. And he said, well, what... what did he offer you the part? I said, I, I don't know. I think so. And then he's like, called me back to him and say, he goes, they want you to play the part, you know. Um, but I was in such a daze and I was enthralled by what he was talking about in terms of the story that I was, wasn't really kind of focused on, you know, how it was sort of panning out. And then it sort of dawned on me that, oh, you're, you're, he wants you to play Avner. Uh, yeah, it was very surreal, very, very surreal. Um, what was that experience like with him? You've worked with a lot of great directors. Do do you learn a lot from some of them more than others or...? Yeah, and some of them, that was probably my... It's hard to say your best experience. If it wasn't my best, it's my equal best experience working with someone. Um, and I think it depends on whether the director... Uh, like some directors like to teach you things. Some directors like sharing that what they're experiencing with you. Others don't. He was definitely someone who I felt like I was just sitting next to someone who was making a movie and he was sharing the story with me and I also happened to be in the film. It was a really special, great way to work and you just felt completely a part of it and invested and he was very inclusive and... Um, amazing, you know, it's just a really, really wonderful experience. And, yeah, so as a result I did feel like I learned a lot because I felt like he was willing to teach a lot, you know, and some, some directors are amazing with that and share their, their vision and, you know, I love the camera so I'm always really interested in the technical side of it and, and, and that's another way into that relationship with a director or with a, with a DP. I'm, I'm in awe of DPs. Um, and love working closely with them. So, um, yeah, that, that film was like the, phew, Janusz Kaminski and Spielberg together and being able to watch that up close was just unbelievable, yeah. And you had a great cast too with Daniel Craig and uh, Jeffrey Rush was in that movie yeah, too, Yeah, Jeffrey right? was in it and, um, yeah, it was an amazing cast, amazing. I mean, you know, and you playing a Mossad agent, it sort of reminded me that, you know, when you say you wanted to be a character actor, absolutely... How many, how many 
actors in Hollywood would, you know, play something like that and, you know, that's that's a character. That's a total character, right? Mm. You're not sort of doing the whole leading man, you know, same thing in every movie. Um, does that still – is that still something you get excited about? You're always looking for that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a nice pressure not to have, you know, because it means that you can – you can move around a bit more and you can be a bit more lighter on your feet. Um, and also I think it sends a good signal, you know. So I'll have people approach me and and they'll be like, would you consider – absolutely, absolutely. You know, so like um, whether it be, you know, something like on The Finest Hours or like even in King Arthur with Guy Ritchie who I'd been wanting to work with forever and he called up and said, I've got this part – it's not the lead, but I think it's a really cool part. Would you consider the I was like, yes, yes. You know, like so I think it, it it means, you know, oh, um, Lone Survivor is another one, mm. you know. Uh, I, I love doing that sort of thing. And it, and it, it sort of takes the pressure off and it, like I say, I, I like being light on my feet, you know. it's it, And then that always counterbalances with other roles where you are the person and you're there every day and so forth. But it's not, it's nice to be able to mix around and not just focus on, okay, well, you know, if you're not the guy, well, what what's the point? You know, I, right. I think it's be a really, really boring way to, to, to work and so it also means selfishly for me that I can go in search of characters that might be interesting but might not be the main person, you know what I mean? You yeah, can still yeah. go and do it. Well, it's great because you also have done – such a diverse, you know, you look at the, each of the roles and then you did a horror movie, which I think mm-hmm. was the last time I saw you was right. Deliver Us From Evil. Um, and then you went and did the Ricky Gervais movie after that, which mm-hmm. that must have been a treat for you. I'm assuming you're oh, a big fan of Ricky. Yeah, huge. Yeah, it was an unbelievably good time. Yeah, I think it's really important to, to you know, if you're lucky enough to not be pigeonholed and if you're lucky enough to... Um, have the opportunity to fight against that, it's a wonderful thing, you know, and it means that you can pick and choose and it sends a message to to directors who are always, who, who know that they can approach you about something different based on the fact that they've seen you do different things and that um, they'll know you're open to it. You're one of the few actors, I think, that never lived in another country the whole time you've been on this journey. I mean, you've spent plenty of time here and other places, but was there ever a point where you were pressured or you felt I'm going to mi- I'm missing out on things and we should all move or were you just was that something else you were really clear on from the start? No, it just never made sense to me and it was the right decision because like here's an example. I'm I'm in LA for Dirty John. I haven't worked here for 8 years. I what would I have done if I was living in LA for the last eight years, mm. you know? So to me it was just always really obvious but at the same time I was lucky enough, I didn't have to. I didn't have to come here and and hustle for two or three years. I was really lucky to, to you know, only ever come here when I was working. So it was never really a something that was needed to be um, contemplated because it just wasn't necessary. Now if it was necessary I would have to have given it some thought who knows what I would have done. Um, but for me and for my wife and for my kids, it's been awesome to be able to live at home and never move. Um, and I, don't re- I, I can't compare it to anything else because I don't know what the other version would be like. Uh, but I do know that it's been great for me. Right. Yeah. 
Um, I always ask everybody this one question because we've all been asked it a million times, which is, you know, how come so many Aussies do so well? What's in the water down there? We hear variations of it. Do you have a theory yourself, especially now that there's just so many we've all lost track of how many are yeah, here? Yeah, I had a theory years ago which no longer works. <laughs> um, so now I have no theory. <laughs> A lot of people think it's a lot to do with our attitude about Aussies being very persistent. Um, people love working with Australians, mm. you know, the crews as well. You know, I think the government subsidised drama schools and everything. I think that, you know, I've heard a lot of people with different variations. It's probably not just one thing, but I, I do think that the Aussie attitude does maybe help in a lot of I think of it ways. probably does. I mean, the, 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 the old theory I had was that we get to make our mistakes in front of small audiences. And so usually by the time we get a chance, usually by the time we get our first opportunity here, we've kind of lost a few of the rough edges. I that's, think that's, that's still a pretty only, valid one. That's my only real theory. That's why all the kids who come out of Neighbours and Home and Away are ready here. They've done all that work and yeah. nobody here has seen any of it. You yeah, know? yeah. And ma maybe if, if, you know, they only ever show them the first couple episodes of their career they wouldn't get a job but you know they've had time to hone their craft and like you say it's uh um you know being in that environment of of fast turnaround and churning out and churning out and churning out the work it may not be the highest standard but at the same time there is something that you're learning you know there that they, they are learning their craft they are learning a discipline um you know, a lot of those shows have been around for a long time, so they're, you know, I guess they have to respect the environment and the people they're working with and it probably does breed a good attitude, I would imagine. America's been so ridiculously generous towards us um, and we're so unbelievably protective of our own industry, you know. Um, so, no, we're very, we're very lucky, you know. We've, there's many, many of us who have benefited from, from that system and that generosity and it seems like it's still still going. And Dirty John was something um, you wanted to do because of the character or yeah. the whole story or? Uh, I was fascinated by the story but, yeah, selfishly I thought the character of John was pretty, you know, pretty unique opportunity, very unique opportunity, yeah. And working with Connie Britton, how's that? The two of you, are, you're both co-producing. What does that mean? Yeah, uh, It means that they have to check with you on everything. <laughs> it's a really nice check and balance for an actor when you're committing to something, uh, you know, when it's basically the, the two of you and uh, you're taking a leap of faith. You know, Connie and I both signed on without a script. We knew what the story was. We knew what we'd be doing. Um, but it's a leap of faith. So, yeah, we were both executive producing and it was wonderful. It was wonderful to be able to give feedback and to be heard and to be part of that process. And it, it gave us some comfort and confidence in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the project for sure. And you, it's your first time on TV in a long time. How, how has it felt? Doing a Absolutely no different to a film. Um, it was a four-month job, so it was really no different to doing a slightly long shoot for me. I mean, most of the indie films I do are sort of four, five, six weeks, um, you know, over the last sort of five or six years. So it was a bit longer than that. But, no, it, it kind of just felt like a, like a, like a film. Just you, you have to ask me after it goes to air because that'll be the difference. It's just more eyeballs. You know, the amount of people who say to me, when's your next movie coming? Like, 
dude, it's not my job to keep you like just IMDb. You know, if you're not in blockbusters, people are like, where, where is your movie? But distribution is so, you know, upside down these days. It's harder for people to find your work. So the big difference for me will be, you know, this is something that people will easily access. Um, and you might get some weird looks for a while on the street. Oh, I think so. Oh, it is called Dirty John for a reason, <laughs> right? <laughs> that should be interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. And my last question just about your future, I, I was with Bruna Papandrea last night and she said even though the release isn't out, this is not coming out for quite some time, this podcast, so maybe you can say a little bit about the fact that you might be coming back to Australia to actually work for the first time in a long time. Yeah, I'm always looking for stuff to do at home. It's very hard to find. Um, but, yeah, I would kill. I would kill to if I found the right thing to do it, obviously. Hmm. That's all <laughs> I can say for now. Okay, well, stay tuned, everybody. <laughs> stay tuned. Thank you so much, Eric, for sharing your story. Thanks, it Jenny. That's great. great. Brought back a lot of memories. Yeah. To go and do a therapy session. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. I'll send you the bill later. Okay. <laughs> So be prepared to be creeped out by Eric's performance in Dirty John. He's so convincing. And an update from my fellow podcast guest, producer Bruna Papandrea, who finally confirmed what Eric couldn't, that he will be working in Australia this year, filming an adaptation of Jane Harper's best-selling Aussie novel, Dry. I can't wait. That's all for now. See you next time on Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood was presented by me, Jenny Cooney, and recorded in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Audio production was by Nick Slater, and executive producer was Jenny Goggin. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the app, or look me up on iTunes. Listener.